gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then. Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine and, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's, it's a podcast. podcast. Hello and welcome to Fighting in the War Room, episode 90, the review segment for Friday, October 9th, 2015. Still the year of our Time Lord, Dr. Emmett Brown, and also the year of our Mac Lord, Steve Jobs. Even though he's been dead for four years, he's the subject of the movie Steve Jobs, which opens this weekend. It played the New York Film Festival last weekend. It's this got week kind is the of... anniversary of his death, did you know? Is it really? Yes. Wow. So, uh, so meaningful. Um, it is, it's kind of got a, uh, murderer's row of big name talent behind it. It's directed by Danny Boyle. It stars Michael Fassbender. It's written by Aaron Sorkin. Various other people circling around Michael Fassbender include Kate Winslet, Jeff Daniels, Seth Rogen, uh, Michael Stuhlbarg, Catherine Waterston, lots of people. Um, and as you've probably heard, it is set in just three scenes. It's various, before various product launches in 1984, 1988, 1998. And you're kind of intended to get a full picture of the man Steve Jobs from just these three scenes. And uh, some would argue, myself included, that that is kind of a limited way to try to give yourself a full portrait of a person. But Patches, I think you like this best out of the three of us. Hmm. So I kind of want to start with you. I want you to make the case for it before... Uh, at least I kind of try to bring you back down. Well, first, I think it's a little inaccurate to say that this is three scenes. That makes it sound like one take, Birdman, Jobby. Uh, I think it's also inaccurate to say that it's about Steve Jobs, but that's a more abstract complaint. Yes, I would say so. Um, <laughs> I, I, I find it very musical, and maybe that's just because I spend most of my time on this podcast talking about film scores and, and music and that sort of thing, but... Um, it's it is you know i think the description of being operatic is kind of overused in a lot of big theatrical uh, movies and, and big theatrical acting but this it's a really poem, I, right? yeah it is a poem mm. <laughs> no i actually find this movie to be quite symphonic um because of the music playing behind people but also because of this three movement structure and because of how the the dynamics of conversation aaron sorkin wrote this script and it goes fortissimo it goes piano soon and then it goes you know big and small and and it feels like mozart to me it just you see feels... patrick, uh, pa- patrick patrick patches you talk about the orchestra but i play the orchestra <laughs> i'm de- i'm the was to your jobs it's probably true in some way. so you're the one telling david all his ideas are gonna fail pretty much yeah and then he just does them yeah, and Waz was right. <laughs> but then I'm we got the movie about him, huh? Unfortunately, this movie starts in 1984 and ends in 1998, so we'll be waiting to, for my Waz moment eventually. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think this is an exercise in acting. It's an exercise in being larger than life. Um, Michael Fassbender, I, I guess he's gotten a lot of complaints that he doesn't look like Steve Jobs or sound like him. Um, I don't know if he looks like Steve Jobs. I'm, I'm not studying photographs of Steve Jobs as a young man. Who cares? He doesn't look like him. I mean, I agree with you that who cares? He doesn't look like him for the first two thirds, and then suddenly in the final third in 1998, he is. It's uncanny. Oh no, yeah, he looks much just looks like, like the him. Steve Jobs I remember. You know, that's yeah. all that really probably matters. He grew into this identity that I'm very. Aston Kutcher looks a lot more like young Steve Jobs. That's yeah. true. Pictures does. of him in like the garage. Ashton Kutcher was kind of a, a splitting image. Yeah. But, um, um, 
he sounds like Steve Jobs to me, and he moves and commands the room like I imagine Steve Jobs would, just from the kind of mythologizing that the world has done for Steve Jobs. Michael Fassbender seems to encapsulate that, the man we think we know, and the man maybe we do know a little more of than, than we think. Um, and, and watching him be behind the scenes and be this crazed genius. Uh, I'm watching a madman. I'm watching everyone, every, a, a type of person that everyone hates but has to exist to kind of push these crazy ideas through. And I love that he compares himself to Jesus. And for a second, I'm like, he, but he is like Jesus. You know, he is changing the world. And his, 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 he is madness. And he is uh, something larger than life, bottled into human form. And Aaron Sorkin certainly paints him that way. Uh, and he, as he grows through this movie, I guess uh, to summarize, the, the three events that are taking place in these movements are uh, the 1984 launch of the original Macintosh computer, I believe, right? 1984? Yeah, the 1984 launch of the Macintosh. And then the 1988 uh, kind of soft launch of Next, Steve Jobs' company after he's been fired from Apple, which doesn't really happen. They are not, as we kind of learn in the movie, this is all devices. This is all planning by Michael Fassbender or by Steve Jobs to get back into Apple. Michael Fassbender was the mastermind behind Apple. Yes, he was pulling strings the entire time. Uh, twist. And then in 1998, it's the launch of the iMac, you know, this revolutionary design friendly computer that uh, I don't. I think Has it to make the, it say hello. I, wait, that was hello. the first Macintosh. That's the first one. Hello. Yeah. yeah. They all Although the, the last one does wind up saying hello as they well. All, all the computers say. It's very creepy. Um, so, yeah, uh, obviously these are huge events, and this movie is self aware enough for Steve Jobs to actually say something like, uh, does everyone get drunk and just tell me what they think about me and, and talk about real life before all these events? Yes, they do, because this is kind of fantasy. Uh, Aaron Sorkin is taking, he's plucking details from Walter Isaacson's uh, very popular Steve Jobs biography and figuring out how to thread it all together in Sorkinese, you know, walking through hallways and yelling at each other and then having these strange intimate moments and well that's an interesting segue to what i yeah. took away from the movie which is that uh, i don't really think this movie has all that much to do with steve jobs <laughs> i mean it's of course it it uh i mean there is a certain objective level that it built around his life and steve jobs is the character around which it orbits but i really think that steve jobs and his mythos is an excuse and a conduit for aaron sorkin to tell another story about great american men in all capital letters, uh, in uh, not an entirely dissimilar way from what he's done his entire career in, in the West Wing, in uh, the newsroom, certainly in the social network, which threw a little bit of shade on it, which made it interesting. Um, I think that Sorkin is at heart a lot less interested in the details about Jobs' life um, than he is what he can do with them, which in and of itself doesn't really sound like a bad thing. It sounds like it would make for a much more interesting movie. Um, I just think that he, he isn't really, what, what happens for me is that we end up sort of seeing the same thing three times, uh, and there really isn't enough modulation for it to be interesting. And then the disastrous, I mean, like, like fucking challenger level don't, don't, disastrous don't go there. ending don't go there, uh, of this movie. Yeah, let's I not would, talk I, about I the ending. I actually disagree with you on that. Well, maybe, I mean, you can speak in there. vague terms. Yeah. I'm just going to say, like, the, if the ending of a movie is fucking terrible and not just a lot of the enjoyment that I was having, uh, then it's worth mentioning. But um, what the ending really clarified for me was that 
as fun as it is to watch this movie, and because of Sorkin's dialogue and the sheer fire that everyone's spitting at one another, it's a great deal of fun, particularly in the beginning. It doesn't really add up to anything. Uh, another thing about this movie stuck with me in the least. It actually made me think a lot about this uh, new Hong Sang-soo movie, Right Now, Wrong Then, which is the same film played twice, and there are slight deviations the second time. Uh, and you understand how the changes the character has made, the honesty that he is taken on for himself in the second go-around affect his love life and so on. And uh, I think in having the same sequence more or less play out three times in this film, they're going for something similar to that effect uh, and fail spectacularly. And I say, and like, I, I think that like everything in this movie works except for the things that are most important, <laughs> like the abstract. Well, like, I, I would, I would deep contend the with that. I would, I mean, I'm agreeing that maybe it's, it's not that concerned with the details of Steve Jobs's life. I mean, it's certainly not setting out to be a biopic where we learn everything that really happened, like Ashton Kutcher's Jobs movie, which was just a Wikipedia page. But this, this movie is about creative people and and what we should allow them to give and what we should turn how we should turn our backs towards them in a way um you know this movie's ensemble it's it's steve jobs and it's joanna hoffman played by kate winslet who's his closest confidant who's trying to see you know be this visionary's number two and and help him and and kind of be the Jiminy Cricket on his shoulder as he navigates this world. She, if she can get him from point A to point B intact, emotionally intact, and keep his life together for him, maybe he'll create something as great as it sounds like he will. And Steve Wozniak, you know, admires this guy, knows that he needs this powerful voice to get all these crazy inventions that he's come up with through the pipeline. He needs him, but he knows that he's being eroded every time he steps in a room with Steve Jobs. And then there's Michael Stuhl who I love in this movie as Andy Hertzfeld, this guy who's just is constantly, yeah, he's great. Steve John's constantly lighting a fire under his ass. Do better. Like, why are you even in this room if you're not going to solve this problem? And and he's such an asshole. And, and the, later in the movie, Andy Hertzfeld says, like, I always hated you. And Steve Jobs is like, I always liked you. And, like, this strange dynamic. Like, what do you put up with to allow creativity to flourish? And, of, and, yeah, and when mean, you it, have that introspective moment, like, it has to th- occur three times to watch how this guy steamrolls people and to finally have an introspective moment and wonder, maybe I don't have to feel bad about this. That's challenging. That's that's interesting. Yeah, well, I mean, like, of course, the central question of the movie is, like, can you be brilliant and also decent? Uh, and I think that the movie teased all these things up in a very interesting way. And then in really, like, an astonishingly bad ending, uh, totally undoes my entire like, you're investment in this you're film. You're harping on it. I'm, I'm harping on it. It's it's a fucking train wreck. I mean, it's I was, I was flabbergasted. Everyone around me was. We couldn't believe that what we had just seen had gone to screen. And I, I have to say, different different takeaway from our New York uh, film fest screening, where a lot I I know quite a few people who enjoyed the ending, which is Danny Boyle sentimentality through and through. It is the no, most it's, Danny it's Boyle in part of the movie script. for sure. I mean, Danny Boyle jacks it up to eleven, but all that shit is in Aaron Sorkin's script that's been flowing around for years. So, like, it's my. I would love to throw Danny Boyle under the bus. Don't get me wrong; he is a hack and a half uh, totally most of the disagree. time. But uh, and I think he's a terrible director <laughs> for this movie because he doesn't have the. Um, he just doesn't have the the will to to beat Aaron Sorkin's the good ideas out of Aaron Sorkin's script the way that somebody like David Fincher might. But um, I think that the ending of this movie is a disaster. The cut I saw in Telluride, it's worth noting, 
may in fact be slightly different than the yeah, one that's screened I, in New York. It's 100% different. I can say with authority that it's definitely different. But we don't know to what extreme. I mean, it could be a few frames. You don't know. Um, I, I, I but, heard it's about 10 minutes different in the end. Wow. Well, the, the, the ending of the movie, as I remember it, was not even close to being 10 minutes long. So like maybe over the course of the film, it's 10 minutes different. But Can we not we'll harp on the, the details of the ending and right. talk about I'm not harping about... on the details of the ending. I'm just saying that it undoes so much of what well, yeah, the movie Katie, works towards. You got to jump in here. What, what are you thinking about? Well, this I don't know. You smart men have had so much to say yeah, about this, but Steve I'm not really Jobs sure. All over the place here. Yeah. Um, I think that it is concerned about the details of Steve Jobs' life because I think Patches, as we've been arguing, it's about a myth. It's about you needing to be attached to the details of his life, to the story of the computer in the garage, to the triumphant return to Apple, even though I'd argue that not that many people know as much about Steve Jobs' biography as this we movie assumes. We would argue about that. As we, yeah. we have do you think that it takes for granted some of these details? That I think it does. I, I, yeah. don't. I think it's a movie that in 50 years is going to be really hard to understand. Well, who cares in 50 years? I think I it might be hard for some should people care to understand now. No, go, if you, it's funny. I was just talking to someone. If you go on Twitter and search Steve Jobs, you would think that probably most of what you'd find at this point is people talking about the movie Steve Jobs. But no, people are just endlessly talking about Steve Jobs. I, 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 is, I like, refuse to accept that. He as is a, a religious figure in analysis. America. He's a religious I, figure to some people to in America. So many people going on people Twitter, and you can find anything you want. Uh, that's that's not uh, you know workable evidence. However. Um, I, I do think that Steve Jobs is as famous as you know someone of our time can really be. Um, but I, I still wonder. I still wonder if everyone uh, read this book. But I think no, I didn't read the book. <laughs> I didn't read the book. I, but I, think the <laughs> I didn't problem, even know about the book. Read, even if no. even if you do know about Steve Jobs' life, and if you know who Waz is, I think the problem that this has is this operatic structure is really interesting. Like you're saying, patches where it, cres- it crescendos and it goes back down. You've kind of got the structure and the repetition, and it's interesting in theory. But then you have moments that are supposed to be emotional, like with Waz, or especially with the daughter. And because you don't have the shared implied history that there's no room for within the structure, you don't get any impact. Well, how do you that. not? have that i mean the the emotional payoff of someone like was played really well by i think seth rogan's really good at it he also has the easiest role in the world in this movie okay well i'm not gonna uh, judge the ease of acting he's great no he's great but i just don't think that like he (laughs) has to really stretch all that hard okay well i mean he's playing type i suppose in some ways but it it, it pays off for me because in the beginning we're, we're, we're looking we're watching this igor and like he's he wants the approval of Steve Jobs. He wants to, he wants to get Steve Jobs' approval for his team, and these are things that are recurring. They're plaguing these people, these confidants, forever. We need to see that it happens three different times over. But those three different times are not where that shared history comes years. from. Their history comes from all before the movie starts. Like the yes, but you, the movie is deviant. It has flashbacks. It glimpses in. I think those flashbacks in, are a mistake. I think they're a way. Yeah. They're gilding the lily. It's like if you Aaron Sorkin hands you. I mean, I I I have no way of knowing this. But I really feel like Aaron Sorkin's original version of the script did not have any flashbacks. And they're I, adding, I, they're I, I don't know how you can say that. I think that that's right. I mean, it just, it just I don't know. It feels like there's this perf- there's this perfect symmetry symmetry structure of this script where everything is so contained, and then you add in these flashbacks to provide the context that just can't be done within the structure. There's no sense of emotional weight from just having these constrained spaces. And I don't think the one line where he says, "Does everyone get drunk and come talk to me?" makes up for that i don't i don't think it can have the impact that it wants to when it's got this very interesting but ultimately hamstring hamstringing isn't a word it's a it's a structure that's 
really interesting in theory and doesn't work for it. In my but case. again, I mean, like this is a backstage movie. It, it, this is such in the milieu of like a, a topsy turvy like universe. I mean, the comparisons to Birdman are earned um, in that yeah. sense, at least. And I think that this further convinces me that like it's Steve Jobs is, is a cipher for the ideas that that Aaron Sorkin's getting here. It doesn't mean objectively that he doesn't you know want you to invest in the elements from Steve Jobs' life around which he builds the narrative. But I just think that like Steve Jobs, the man, is an opportunity for Aaron Sorkin, and rather than like this this well, thing that is, could only exist for that so character. Well I think he's interchangeable. He's, so he's an archetype. The character that Steve Jobs is in this movie is an archetype, and the difference is that his Mark Zuckerberg in The Social Network is one of a kind. Uh, and I think that's where the beginnings of this movie's problems are. But see, I and like it's a movie that he's that a mythic is in- figure. This is why people wrote operas about Shakespearean about characters. About Steve Jobs. About, oh. about, oh, I mean, this is there. an opera about Steve Jobs. It is. This is what it Phil is. Glass does. You know, it's not Einstein. a poem. It's an opera. It's the same the- thing. <laughs> um, I mean, this is an immensely enjoyable movie to watch. I will rewatch it endlessly on cable. I know I'm a broken record saying that all <laughs> the time are. in some of these movies, but um, I still it, think you're going to rewatch The Walk too. Not letting no, that one go. No, I'm I'm hard no on that. But this is a this is a super fun movie. Uh, it just it's Teflon. I mean, it's it's a candy coated shell around I mean, nothing it is around air. Entertainment. You know, I was. Thoroughly entertained, and we're kind of glossing over something. Like I really like Jeff Daniels in this movie as John Scully, the former Apple CEO. Like he, it's a mistake to cast him after the newsroom. I guess, but I never watched the newsroom, so I didn't even think about it. But I knew knew it was there, and he had the the linguistics down. I mean, and speaking of the flashbacks, he has a great. There's a great flashback between John Scully and Steve Jobs. The kind of or the rise and fall of that relationship, which I loved. I loved bouncing out of it and having this like Michael Clayton screaming match in the hallways and then bouncing to this like super or oh, dramatized noir lighting and like in a boardroom it's so crazy i i loved how energetic it was it was just a thrill to watch and i mean i guess the takeaways are thin for you guys but uh, it is definitely to, a thrill it's to enough watch. to sink my teeth into and and have a great time I enjoyed watching it and I had a good time watching it, but I did feel frustrated by all the opportunities there were with this character, with all these great actors and the performances that are happening that didn't feel like the structure was a lot. The structure, again, like is interesting, but doesn't allow for as much of that as it should. Oh, I guess I liked it. Oh, too bad. You are definitely There's in... so many good lines, too. Like, God, you know, I, I, a there day. are great lines. I liked it. I wrote a a very positive review out of Telluride. Um, and it wasn't one of those like mountain air festival experiences. It's just that the movie is so much fun to watch that even with the disappointment of the, the stunning last few sequences, I still held very good things to say you, about you it. You mentioned that Danny Boyle is like the wrong guy to make this movie. Why do you think that? I just think that he is too genteel to really push this movie the way it needed to go. I think the movie's, um, and you see this again in the ending, but I think that the movie's tone is at odds with the the menace and the sharpness of Steve Jobs as a character. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that like Danny Boyle was really subservient to to uh, Aaron Sorkin's script and tried to compensate for with that, that with his like directorial flourishes here and there, which do nothing but distract. Uh, and I think that for this script to really achieve greatness. If it were possible, and who knows if it were, uh, you really needed someone who's going to beat the shit out of it and be like a true uh, collaborator on that level. Um, I really don't like playing the game of saying this would have been a better movie 
Um, if well, that's what if uh, David Fincher directed right it, <laughs> I I don't know I don't know, but I I do think I oh I will say that the Social Network is a better movie and it's a different script. I will so agree. who knows? I will agree that um, it's a better movie, but, but but I and I will also agree that Danny Boyle's like little visual flourishes. He loves just throwing you know graphical information up on screen for some reason, like playing in the background clips of stuff happening. Yeah, and that stuff's pointless. Yeah, this really is an, another interesting that. note. Was that like in my screening in Telluride? Uh, and there's some mystery surrounding this. The They're walking down the hallway in one scene. They're talking about computers freezing. And the screen froze for a, for a few seconds um, before the scene carried on. And the timing was so perfect that you had to think that it was part of the movie. But at the same time, the it was, like, not fancy enough. Like, if Danny Boyle is going to freeze a movie, he's going to, like, pixelate it and, like, go really nuts. And so a large part of me thought that it was uh, an error with the DCP. And they were screening it simultaneously but we didn't really think to check with people who were the other screening and then i hear that this didn't happen in the new york film festival screenings so who knows if it was one of those things that they wrinkled out uh in the work in progress version the one that's screening now um but that's the kind of thing that you expect from a danny boyle movie it says a lot about him uh and the level at which he's working which uh, i i mean is a is a backhanded thing to say that you have to question whether or not it was an error with the DCP. You think it yeah. could be a choice that he made. That's interesting. Um, yeah, I don't think Danny Boyle was really the right fit for this material. Let me I ask think... you one mm. thing, Katie. I need to get yes. your opinion on something. I left the theater and was talking to a group of people, and the inevitable came up. Aaron Sorkin, he hates women. Why mm. does this movie hate women? And this was a and this was a very I mean passionate conversation because. He's come under fire for that kind of stuff, and so it's going to come up here again. And it's hard to defend Aaron Sorkin because he's kind of a slob in certain re- remarks he's made over the past. Um, does this movie have a women problem? Because I would actually Oof. say that uh, Catherine Waterston's character, she plays Chris Ann Brennan, his, his wife and the mother of his child, alleged child, in, at least in 1984, um, She's underwritten, and it's very difficult for her to kind of squeeze into this movie because I don't think she was actually there. So that's one of the kind of manifestations of, of Sorkin's imagination here. And, and she's someone whose jobs really did try to distance himself from for a long right. time. And she's difficult, too, because she has problems, and she's, you know, whatever happened in real life, she took his, she was taking his money for good reasons. She's trying to raise his child, but then she's, like, spending money on you know, uh, faith healers, I think healers to heal her house in LA. And like, that's kind of weird. And you can understand why someone would be upset with that. So there's a, there's a strange dynamic between them. That's realistic and complicated, but not a lot of time to flesh that out. And I could see why someone might think there isn't time for women in this movie, but then you have Kate Winslet. Who's really, really good. And wait, really weren't we powerful. asking Katie what she thought about this? I was going to yeah. say, you're I'm, asking I, me a question and then you're just I'm talking. throwing it all out there. This is the case and here's the evidence and now you. I mean, I think it has a women problem in that Aaron Sorkin rarely writes women whose purpose is not to support the man at the center of the movie, but that's the structure of Steve Jobs. That's the structure of his life as told by this movie. So it's kind of hard to argue with that. I mean, I do. I think the fact that Joanna Hoffman is an interesting character who seems to have a lot going on and her main purpose is as supportive work wife kind of sucks. Like, she seems like an interesting person on her own. I'd like to know what she really thought of Steve Jobs. You don't really get that from this movie. Kate Winslet is really great. It's a great part. It's not like Aaron Sorkin is saying, oh, the only important people in Steve Jobs' life were men and the women were just harpies there she to get in the way. She knows a lot more about his life and real life than he ever will. 
Yeah, I mean, she's incredibly knowledgeable, incredibly helpful, but it's a work wife role. It's a kind of thing that's popped up in a lot of Aaron Sorkin's work. It's not Hmm. anything impressive in terms of treatment of women. But I I mean, I'm not going to walk out of this and being like, this is what's wrong with roles for women in Hollywood. Because she and Catherine Watterson and whoever the girl is who plays the daughter in the third scene all make a lot of the roles. It's it's fun to say Aaron Sorkin dialogue, even if your character's purpose within the story isn't as strong as it could be and this whole thing is you know there's the, the classic adage of the behind every great man is a is a great woman uh but i think aaron sorkin's problem is that great women don't exist uh by on themselves their own. Yeah. in, in right, his they world they only exist behind great men. <laughs> they only exist behind great men yeah. um and you saw that uh, very strongly in the newsroom and you see that uh, and quite literally in that relationship where she's whispering into his ear, right. not unlike holly hunter but holly hunter is the main character broadcast news so she gets a pass there um, and, uh, and I really think that like broadcast news is really the movie that Aaron Sorkin has been chasing his entire career. Uh, I think but you think everyone's chasing broadcast. Well, as they I know, should I be, am. but Aaron Sorkin, I want every episode of this podcast to be like, someone just yeah. stole my copy of broadcast news. I'm chasing them down the street. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, I think that, I think exactly what Katie said. I, uh, I only Joanna. bring it up because I'm bracing for the think piece onslaught when this movie comes out. It's yeah. coming, especially as it ramps up for the Oscars. I just want to like brace myself and see if other people are on the same page as me that I can understand. I think Steve Jobs had women problems. Steve Jobs definitely had women problems. Yeah. I think that's a big part of it. But yeah. also like we continue to choose to tell the stories of white men who have women problems as our big prestige movies. So Yeah, I mean it's a tough spot because like Steve Jobs' story is sort of irresistible. I understand that. Um and Aaron Sorkin is attracted to that archetype and uh and Steve Jobs as a man had had problems with women. Uh but you know, we're not talking about Aaron Sorkin in a vacuum here with this one project. So it's it is what it is. He knows what he's interested in, what he does well. Uh, it's a shame that there isn't enough really out there to balance that some of the time. But and, and now, if Aaron Sorkin went out and wrote a movie about women, I think he would be afraid that people were thinking it was just a reaction to. <laughs> I don't. His I don't. Press. Aaron Sorkin no writing a movie about women but is not anything I want in this yeah, world. But nor do I think it's going to happen. So, but I do. To close, I do want to commend this movie because it does grapple with these contradictory natures of Steve Jobs as having a problem with women, but also having Joanna Hoffman as his closest confidant and being a huge asshole but being visionary. And it it is really concerned with that. It's not trying to make him into any one great figure. I think. A big flaw in it is that unlike The Social Network, Aaron Sorkin does seem to admire Steve Jobs, whereas in The Social Network, he kind of admired his uh, Mark Zuckerberg's smarts, but also detested him in a way. Like, there's not quite that complicated a relationship with the subject, but it does really, it digs into a lot of that stuff. I think that's I, an interesting like way that. of looking at it. I think, I think you've nailed it. I think that uh, um, it's, hard, I mean, it's hard for anybody not to admire Steve Jobs to some level. Yeah. Uh, it's a lot easier to brush off Mark Zuckerberg, um, but... I think that, yeah, especially that close to the to the man. I mean, it's easy to be seduced by the, the vision is larger than life uh, myth. By the time that he died, uh, I, yeah, I think that, and and he shoehorns his affection in there in ways that are sort of clumsy. Uh, and I think he might be better off when he is not trying to lionize somebody. I mean, like the best episodes of the, and that's what he does though. But like the best episodes of the West Wing <laughs> are the ones where the president is like essentially Jesus. That great line. Uh, in one episode where he's like, you know, some of the effect of like, here in this house you stand when the president stands or comes in or whatever it is. I mean, like, it's all about uh, the president being somewhat infallible and he gets off on writing that stuff. But 
I think that middle ground is tricky. Best Greek myth movie since Wrath of the Titans. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. It'd probably be even more fun to watch the Ashton Kutcher Jobs movie after seeing this, which is like such a sloppy blowjob to Steve Jobs. That well, after... that movie does include scenes where he's like throwing his wife to the curb. and Yeah, but it also pregnancy. begins and ends with Ashton Kutcher with tears in his eyes and his voice trembling being like the people who change the world or <laughs> like who they say can't change the world are the ones who do he's standing and, on stage uh, just a line of people giving him blowjobs it's seriously it's it's porn it's pornographic but <laughs> um and the movie really is uh anyway steve, steve jobs. jobs nice don't lose faith Stay hungry. Stay foolish. Don't lose faith. I'm convinced that the only thing that kept me going was that I loved what I did. You've got to find what you love. And that is as true for work as it is for your lovers. Your work is going to fill a large part of your life. And the only way to be truly satisfied is to do what you believe is great work. And the only way to do great work is to love what you do. Man, Pan comes out this weekend. I didn't even know Pan came out. No one's inviting me to Pan, and I am the one person on this planet who wants to see Pan. I wanted to see Pan, and I did see Pan, and I liked Pan. It is not Not a a great... It is not a great movie. It is deeply flawed. It might be Joe Wright's second worst movie, but I haven't seen the solo in a while. Pan is, in fact, a movie. Pan is a movie. It is a Peter Pan story coming out this weekend. It involves Hugh Jackman as Blackbeard and Rooney Mara as Tiger Lily, along with various other implausible things. Uh, But it's a movie that's doing something. It's set. It's a kid's movie. It's very broad, very goofy. It has silly jokes and big spectacle. But it avoids the kind of CGI nonsense splatter paint as much as it can. And it goes big in weird directions. It has the Lost Boys singing Nirvana while working in these coal mines. Yeah. It gets what like do they, it kinda, sing? Rape they me? sing smells like <laughs> they smell they sing smells like Teen Spirit and they also sing um Blitzkrieg uh, Bop. Um, so it's kind of a Baz Luhrmanny moment, and then you've got these pirate ships that float through the air, and you've got these kind of really elaborately choreographed like fight Gilliam. sequences. It's a little it's a little Terry Gilliamy. It's a uh, it's not it is maybe even doesn't let his freak flag fly as much. Like it's still a studio movie. It still has to give in to kind of the mechanics of a plot. But it's really something to look at, and it's got energy to it. And Garrett Hedlund and Rooney Mara as kind of the uh, primary grown-up heroes are really fun to watch together. Garrett Hedlund's doing this, like, Clark Gable, and it happened one night swashbuckling thing. Like, Indiana Jones cranked up a couple extra. No, movies. Katie, I'm this sorry. This movie I'm sounds coming, great. <laughs> I'm coming down on the side of this is not a movie. <laughs> well, maybe the two of you should go together this weekend and decide if you think it's real. Um, I don't know. If I close I mean, my eyes and dream, it'll be it real. Sound, it sounds... It sounds a little bit made up to be. I'm to be a long time Joe Wright apologist, and I obviously went into this movie in that mode, and I really want to see him take big shots. Like I thought Anna Karenina was incredible. Um, so you kind of have to go in willing to meet this movie where it lives. I, 
I think Joe Wright's terrific um, for the most part. I mean, we all we all agreed to forget the soloist is a movie. Yes, um, it's about as much of a movie as Pan is a movie. But Pride and Prejudice, Anna Karenina, uh, Atonement, I also love. Um, but I, I'm not sure if there's a filmmaker on earth who could make me actually give a shit about a Peter Pan movie. Who gives a fuck about Peter Pan? Not I. Not interested. Never would be. Not interested in any of these movies. Certainly never going to watch Hook again. Uh, done with Peter Pan. You've offended fifty percent of our listenership by dissing uh, Hook. Yeah, if you've defended Hook over the years, you owe Pan a look because I think it is equally goofy, um, but actually has a little bit more. Uh, I don't know. Inventiveness. Did you like the two thousand three Peter Hogan? I liked it fine. It's fine. It's pretty. It is pretty. Is this movie pretty? That's what I really want. I like... See, you say you never want to see a Pan movie, David. I, I like Peter Pan. I like all the imagery of Peter Pan. I'm, I'm, I want to see this movie. Nope. I, I watched uh, Alison Williams as Pan. No, that I was tough. I can understand why you're in <laughs> fantasy therapy. Yeah. <laughs> I, I never need another Peter Pan story as long as I live. No one ever... No one sees Ugawam in this or whatever is the song that the Indians sing. I know. So that's better. Um Anyway, uh, I think that's all the other new releases we haven't talked about. So, Patches, what was this week's lightning round question? Yes, it was in honor of uh, Steve Jobs. Who is cinema's most forgivable absentee parent? Is is Steve Jobs up there as a forgivable absentee parent? I don't know. I don't know if people have seen it. Mm-hmm. Him and his daughter seem to get along in moments. Of the hey. Um, I have a good answer, I think. Sean M. Byrne said Steven Spielberg's dad inspired so many great movies he should get an honorary Oscar. Mm. I agree with that 100%. That's Real life absentee parent who has done a lot of great work for cinema. <laughs> I would watch that Academy Award ceremony. <laughs> um, I'll go with, uh, I mean, I think I'm duty bound to go with uh, this answer, regardless of what the question is. <laughs> I think I've probably done it five or ten times before. But Julian Fadul says Selma in Dancer in the Dark. She she was ultimately an absentee parent, but by no fault of her own. She really wanted to to be there for her son who desperately needed that eye operation, but was not meant to be. And I'm going to go with at geek underscore binge, Matthew Legarata, who said, Randy Robinson in The Wrestler. He's just so vulnerable, you know? I wanted to give Mickey Rourke a hug. But Aww. if you gave Mickey Rourke a hug, he would crush you because he's big. He's a That's wrestler. True. He's the wrestler. Is the wrestler. Uh, that does it for this week's Fighting in the War Room. We will be back next week, maybe talking about more absentee parents. Uh, Wait, maybe. What? what are you insinuating? What, I don't is, know. what movie is that? I, I think we're gen- talking about uh, Bridge of Spies and maybe Crim- Crimson Peak. Hey, Tom Hanks leaves his family to go solve the Cold War. That's true. What a dick. What a dick. So we'll talk about that. In the meantime, tell the people who you are. I'm Matt Patches. I'm the senior writer at Esquire.com, and I'm on Twitter at Mr. Patches. I'm David Ehrlich. As of next week, I'll be a staff writer at Rolling Stone. You can find me on Twitter at David Ehrlich. And I'm Katie Rich. You can find me at VanityFair.com or on Twitter at Katie Rich, K-A-T-E-Y-R-I-C-H. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back talking to you next week.